the thing that I find frustrating is that it feels like it's getting better because I think the media is slightly changing the narrative. We're becoming more politically correct. We're thinking more about who we put on panels and on front covers of magazines. But the fact that we're changing the narrative doesn't necessarily mean that the people who actually day-to-day benefit from the access to capital in this space that defines who succeeds and who doesn't, that doesn't seem to be changing. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to acknowledge what's been happening in Europe over the last few weeks. Like many of you, I have friends that are Ukrainian and extended family from Ukraine. It's been heartbreaking and terrifying to see what's happening to such innocent people, but also incredibly inspiring to see such bravery and amazing leadership in the face of such aggression. I and the whole of the 40 Minute Mentor and JBM team stand in solidarity with Ukraine. And if you are feeling helpless like I was the other day, we will leave some links in the show notes of ways that you can help. Thanks for listening. Before we get into today's episode, I also wanted to share a podcast recommendation with you, Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Former Downing Street advisor, Jimmy McLaughlin, explores the future of the economy with Britain's leading entrepreneurs, raising awareness of all the exciting jobs that are created every day. I really enjoyed one of their latest episodes featuring Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. They speak candidly about the moments in his life that have been transformational to Rishi's mindset and work ethic, how he encourages a culture of failure and how hard it is to work in politics. To listen to this episode and the rest of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future archives, head to any of your favorite podcast platforms now and hit subscribe. Now for today's 40-Minute Mentor, I'm joined by the incredible Marta Kropinska, serial entrepreneur and head of Google for Startups UK, a program run to support thriving, diverse, and inclusive startup communities around the world. Marta is a real inspiration, and we had a fantastic chat about her incredible career. We talk about her early founder experience, when her first business failed, and what she learned from that journey. We discuss the moments that made Marta feel happiest at work, and what it was like to be named a Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient. And she also shares some incredibly candid feedback on the progress the tech industry has made when it comes to DE&I. No matter whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, a founder looking for investment, or you're seeking some first-hand mentorship from an industry trailblazer, this episode ticks all the boxes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 40 minutes with the brilliant Marta Kropinska. Marta, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's lovely to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very, very good. And I'm very excited to talk about your amazing career. But before we jump into that, and to help our listeners get to know you a bit, um, we're going to do some quick fire questions like we always do. So if you could finish the following sentences, that would be amazing. Are you ready? Yes, always. Born ready. (laughs) Perfect. When I was younger, I always wanted to be a karate instructor. Oh, very good. What did you do karate <laughs> as a kid? <laughs> yeah, not not at all. Never did I have a single class, but you know, just dream big. Dream it looked big. cool. And I loved, you know, sort of just tripping on power. <laughs> awesome. My first job was a waitress. Classic. Me too. My biggest achievement in my career to date is that I have not become an asshole. 
Oh, that's good. That's so good. And very important. Well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I do. I do sometimes check with friends and family if this is still true, but I'm, I'm uh, so far so good. <laughs> I wish I could be better at being patient. I share that with you. That is definitely <laughs> something I have. Yeah. My mother is like the most patient person ever. And my dad is not. He's very much like me. So yeah, I, I think a lot of people listening to that will empathize. My biggest vice is? I have so many. I'm impulsive. Mm, okay. Not always a bad thing for an entrepreneur, but uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it increases. I think I've managed over the years, I've managed to, I've managed to control my, my, my speech. So I managed not to say the things that I think, but I hear that my face still very much says everything that I'm thinking, which is why podcasts are great for me, <laughs> because you can hear my voice, but you can't see my face. Brilliant. I love that. And finally, can you share something that we couldn't learn from your CV that could be a perceived failure or a setback that you've learned from? Well, I, I, I do talk about it, but there's this whole narrative around being a successful entrepreneur and my first startup failed. And it was a pretty painful failure because, I mean, we started super young. We were 19-year-olds in Krakow, Poland, built a social media platform before Facebook was much heard of in this part of the world. And we did really well until we completely messed it up. We couldn't figure out how to monetize, uh, even though we had a really good user base. One of our co-founders walked pretty much with no warning. We couldn't figure out any way to raise money or get a bank loan. I've learned so much from that first experience. I suspect the things that worked out well for me later would have not had I not had some painful learnings at the very start. That is such a good answer. And I think we're gonna we'll come on to some of the the, the rockier bits of the journey because I think they're they're probably more important than the super successful bits because it really is where you learn so much from. Uh, but thank you for being so candid and sharing that. You're a serial entrepreneur and we're going to talk about the journey shortly. Uh, and you're currently head of Google for Startups, which is very exciting. But before that, we want to talk a bit about your entrepreneurial background. So is that something that's just always been there? And where did the inspiration for your early businesses come from? Love the question. Absolutely no, it's it's not always been there. As I've mentioned already, I come from Poland, uh, you know, a post-socialist country where, um, you know, frankly, my, my parents didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in their body. And even just finding themselves in this sort of new capitalist world was, was quite tricky for them. I didn't really have many people to look to for inspiration. I think, I think the sort of the, the first business was born out of this excitement and enthusiasm for the internet you know i'm not sure what the average age of your of your listeners is but um you know if those those of us who remember dial up internet and you know and then suddenly you know being able to get good quality broadband and being able to reach people across the world and I remember the sort of early days, and I'm not even that old, but the, the early days of, of, of Web 2.0, user-generated content rather than just editorial content put online. And I think it was the, the, the first business was, was just the reaction to, oh, my God, there is, a, there is opportunity. Like, we have to do something about it. Uh, I think it's called the mountain syndrome. Like, the, the, the mountain mocks me, just the fact that there is a mountain. If I don't, if I don't climb it, you know, bad on me. And that was sort of, that was very, very naive in sort of in this first instance, the the second business, Asomo, was infinitely better thought through. And also my co-founders were 
you know, exceptionally experienced people that came from a very different background than me. But um, I've been a migrant, moved a few times, lived in Ireland, in the US and came to the UK 10 years ago. And sending money back to my mother was always incredibly expensive. My first experience working as a waitress in Dublin, making money in euros at the time that, you know, I was probably able to make a tenth of that back in Krakow. I saved 3,000 euros over the course of a summer, wanted to send it back home. And it would have cost me 300 euros and an equivalent of my mother's annual salary to send money back to Krakow. So I instead uh, stuffed my underwear with cash and got on the Ryanair flight back home. But that experience of, well, actually a quarter of a billion people around the world are migrants. More than $700 billion a year are being sent around in remittances. That's three times more than total international development aid. The numbers are huge. So sort of thinking about my early experiences of building a social network, being able to reach everybody with the internet, and just thinking about the where the cost structure sat in, in remittances, how so much of the, the cost was sat in the fact that there had to be a dude sat in a shop with a pen and pencil taking details of, of the transfer, just digitalizing that experience made it infinitely cheaper. And hey, in 2022, that sounds like the most obvious solution ever. But when we were starting in 2012, that was pretty revolutionary to be explaining to our users. And yes, you put in the information on the website. And yes, you put in your debit card details on the website. And no, we will not take all of your money. We'll only take as much money as you're trying to give us. So yeah, the second business was very much built off the back of a much a, a burning need. And I suppose, and then and then you sort of realize that you can't live any other way. I stepped down from Asimo end of 2017 and said to myself, oh my God, that was hard. I don't know if I'd be able to do that again. And Asimo, by all accounts, had been and has been very successful, serves millions of users in Europe who send money back home for a fraction of the cost that they used to raise almost $90 million in, in VC and debt, uh, at some point got to 250 uh, employees. So very much a successful, you know, scaling story. And so when I stepped down, I was like, I don't know if I have another one in me. As things tend to go three months later, I co-founded another fintech. I always say it's it's just, it's such a privilege. We live in such ex- such exciting times. Don't get me wrong, a lot is broken in the world. But the fact that you can, you know, like, Previously, you'd have to get a ton of startup capital, build build a factory and hire 100 people to be able to spin up a new business. And these days you, you know, can pretty much pick up learning, you know, coding skills from YouTube and spin up a website and suddenly you have users and you're able to turn it into something. I think that's just that's just endlessly exciting. It really is. And I think anyone listening to that will sense that just that entrepreneurialism within and, and and i think i think a lot of people listening to this i think are aspiring entrepreneurs so i think that they would love to probably hear you you, you we've talked about asimo you know raised almost 90 million of funding 250 people at its peak one of the fastest growing fintechs around and you really know what it takes to build a rocket ship so anyone that's listening that's kind of has has a nugget of an idea or maybe is just starting on that journey. What sort of advice would you have for them as they kind of start on that that scaling journey? I mean it's 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 interesting. One of my best friend sent me a WhatsApp message earlier and said, I think I need to go into business. I want to start a fashion business. How do I do it? I was like, oh I, where do I start? I mean I think the single thing I would say and I and I, I've repeated that many times is I really think so much of it is about execution and hard work. I think ideas are important, but they're 
they're overrated. You can have the best idea in the world. Actually, just when you think about, look around, and a lot of the companies that are the most successful, a lot of them do very similar things. So it's not like the idea in itself might not defend itself, but being able to deliver on a proposition that you're building really precisely, really understand the need of your user, and also have the resilience to go through the ups and downs. The roller coaster is insane. I can't remember who said that entrepreneurs sleep like babies. <laughs> they wake up every hour and cry. It's it's hard. It's hard. One day you're scoring a great deal with a potential commercial partner. Another day, turns out your tech stack is broken. Another day, you get a term sheet from an investor. Another day, the investor pulls out. You have to really be passionate about what you're doing. You have to be interested, in my view, you have to be interested in the subject matter. If you're not passionate about, there's so much success is so predicated on learning. You'll have to continuously educate yourself in the area in which you're building. And I suppose in all of this, I feel a lot of the narratives around success are a little bit broken. We sort of, we can reduce it quite a lot to power or money or fundraisers or or exits. And fair enough, like all of these things are cool, but... I think if I look back to when I was the happiest at work, it was when I was surrounded by people I loved and looked up to. We had good vibes and good atmosphere on the team. We were delivering to a great standard at speed and we were getting great feedback from the user. There is this psychological term called flow. It's what like musicians get into when they like are playing their instrument or, you know, sort of when you forget who you are, you have this out of body yes. experience and everything Nirvana, feels amazing. Yeah. And it's possible to get that when you're working on the right problem with the right people and mm. getting that live feedback from the user. That's exactly what they wanted. On on that point, actually, so with Asmo, you, you know, you, it was this rocket ship journey, and you had huge success and 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 were very well, you know, regarded and, and very high profile figure in the scene, like. When did it not become in the flow? Like, what was the, was there a reason why it suddenly you moved on? Like, what, what, what was the driver behind that? Because that's often something we see with founders is they, you know, they, they get to a certain point, they either flog a dead horse and keep going and, 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 and sometimes the investors step in and give them nudge or, or on the flip side, just sometimes you just run out of steam a bit for your company and you need a new challenge. I'd be interested to understand what, what your drivers were at that point. I mean, so I, I suppose when it comes to what was hard, I think it's a very universal story. The things is just things that are hard in any business. It's, it's struggles with, you know, hiring the right people, creating the right dynamic, delegating to the right people. You know, it is pressure. It is competition. It is just the relentlessness of it all. I, I don't think there was there were any unique challenges. I suppose when I when I stepped down, it was five years in the making. The company had raised Series B. It was in a it was in a really solid place. And my co-founders and I started asking ourselves, what do we need to take the business to that next step? And one of the co-founders at this point had already departed, been successfully replaced with a with a new CTO. And I think there was also a question of what was 
I the happiest doing and building to what extent that I feel that my vision has already been realized? Was that a point at which it's nice and interesting and valuable to the business to bring in a safe pair of hands? Interesting. I wonder if there is a JBN plug here because, you know, we replaced me with a seasoned COO. So, uh, you know, go figure. One of the things that I think founders founders need to, um, and by the way, very, very interesting process for me to have experienced, you know, that whole experience of replacing yourself. But uh, I do think that I mentioned earlier, the, the company success is so often predicated on the founder's ability to grow with the business, wanting to grow in all the in all the same directions in which the business needs to go. And I think sometimes it's important for founders to ask themselves, you know, where, where, where do I stop and why do I stop and how can I continue being the, the best possible asset to the business, to the team, to the user? But maybe that means that my role has to change. And actually, none of us original founders are in the roles anymore, but I hope everybody has played their most value additive role in the history of the company. Yeah, totally. No, thank you for, for sharing that. That's super insightful. We talked about there's the sexy bits of the startup world, and then there's the less glamorous bits, and we've kind of touched upon both. But one of the things that I, I'd imagine you're most proud of is, is being named in Forbes 30 Under 30. Very few people get such an accolade. What did that recognition mean to you and, and what sort of impact did it have on your career? See, I love this question because it touches upon something that, that is really dear to my heart. And I mean, how did I mean it felt amazing. I, uh, you know, I definitely I definitely felt incredibly special. You get the award and then they give you access to this app where all of the previous people that were main 30 under 30 are on and you can contact each other and suddenly there's like you look at the list and like Adele is top of the list. And I'm like, oh do I DM Adele? Wouldn't that be cool? That's very cool. <laughs> but but the reality the reality is I was obviously delighted. It's it's really important and it has made life easier for me. You know, I'm a, I'm sort of I always I always say that I'm a bit of I'm just like random Polish girl who one day came to London on the Ryanair flight and suddenly was like, you know, I often I you know, I did work hard and I I I I did I do believe that I deserve to be where I am, but I was also insanely lucky to have had the career that I have had. And I think about things like Forbes 30 under 30, it sort of gave me credibility in ways that perhaps I, I, I didn't have it in, in the past. I think it's really important that we think about the power that, that the media or institutions that give such awards have to define success, because I think it was Forbes 30 under 30 or some of the other awards that I got, it sort of started showing me that there are rooms that I not only didn't have access to, but actually didn't even know existed. And 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 getting access to that started making me question, would things be a little bit easier if I had been on the inside? What does it feel like to be on the inside? What are the different tracks that people on the inside can get on? And conversely, if you know, if if this is the free market and everybody is competing with each other, then then those people on the inside and those on the outside it isn't exactly fair and equitable. How do we define, how do we influence who gets who gets access? And I think it's, 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 it's a bunch of the things that contributed to then a couple of years later, me taking the role with Google, because over the years of me being in tech, it, it's been pretty clear to me that, that those who come, you know, who graduated Oxbridge or Stanford, who 
have worked in big corporates, you know, have that have you know with nice fancy brand names associated with their name, that you know partied with certain people and went to certain clubs and did certain deals. It just makes things infinitely easier for you, and and that's fine, but only if we're making sure that it doesn't mean that everybody else stands no chance of winning, especially if we think about tech as tech can only work for everyone if it's built by everyone. Yes. Yeah. So 100%. that really, that, that was, I think, I think that award was actually a very important point in, in how I started mm. thinking about access in tech. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I wasn't expecting that answer, but it says a lot and it actually talks a lot to things we've, we've spoken about on this podcast a lot around advancing social mobility and trying to level the playing field in tech for everybody so that's yeah really interesting to hear and it's kind of the perfect segue actually for us to talk about your your role at google so tell our listeners if you don't mind a, a little bit about what it entails what's your mission and and why would you you know a serial entrepreneur go to work for such a big tech company like google i'd love to love to dig into that uh, so you know google is this search engine <laughs> uh you know so um i've um i've i've actually i've had i've had a really good relationship with google since probably 2014 when asimo raised series a and google approached us and said we think you're a, you're on a really interesting trajectory you're building a really important product can we help you a little bit with some of our insights and some of our products and sort of you know, every, everybody wins. If if that means you build a more successful business, maybe you're going to use Google a little bit more across the whole suite of products. And that's actually what happened. So um, I, I have sort of been as a founder in the orbit of Google since 2014. And so 2018, I was on my third business, then called FreeUp. Again, fintech this time, reducing debt for UK households. And I realized I had had seven co-founders in my time. All of them were white men of, uh, uh, you know, probably, you know, well-educated from, 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 you know, with a certain background. Uh, I sort of started wondering, okay, so where is everybody else? You know, again, the sort of haves and have-nots in tech, what, what does that all mean? And Google for Startups, I'm sure many of the listeners will have heard of. Google Campus in Shoreditch, which was this iconic building. It's actually in March, it will have been 10 years since campus was opened. Um, and I remember coming here bright eyed, you know, straight off the boat and thinking, wow, this is really the epicenter of everything that's going on in tech. So Google for Startups was really sort of conceived to be an accelerator for the startup ecosystem to give startup founders and communities access to the best of Google, which is understood as Google's employees, products, and best practices. So much of my time as a founder, I've been wondering, you know, how do the really big successful companies do it? What can I learn from that? Especially as somebody who did not graduate Stanford and did not have an MBA and, you know, sort of had to figure out how to fly a plane while also building the plane. <laughs> but um, so my role at Google for Startups, we identify support at times now invest in startups that are solving some of the most interesting pressing problems. And we're all really about three things. Uh, tech for good. How can we use technology to solve some of the most important problems? Underrepresented founders, we know that tech is this extraordinary vehicle for creation of generational wealth, but also for impact. Tech products reach across borders. And how do we make sure that people that get to build these products represent the societies that we live in? 
And the third thing was around regional access. I, I moved to London because I couldn't build the business I wanted to back in Krakow because there wasn't really an ecosystem that was adequate for what I wanted. Equally, does that mean that everybody should have to leave their homes and come to the same three or four cities around the world so we can all live in crammed, you know, real estate and have really polluted cities? So, you know, and, and what does that mean? How can, you know, how can we use the resources that London has to enable founders in Wales, in Scotland, in Cornwall, or for that matter, in developing markets in Europe, Middle East and Africa, in Central Eastern Europe or in Africa to tap the resources, the companies that are here, the partnership opportunities, but then still build and create jobs and, and just live good quality lives wherever home is. So that's been fascinating. And, and, and sort of you ask, why, why did I join? I mean, when I joined, I was still an active founder, which props to Google. Google was cool with that it wasn't a, oh no, you have to you have to quit this. It was like, okay, great, you're a founder. That means you're going to come across more authentically rather than being just another Google exec. So so sort of being able to wear the two hats and be building and experiencing the pe- the pain and the stress of that at the same time as leading GFS has been awesome. And you know, was it a major culture shock? Yes. I'd I'd only ever worked for myself and suddenly I had a hundred thousand plus colleagues. Jesus Christ, that was unbelievably bizarre. You know, did I, you know, did I cry myself to sleep a couple of times and I don't cry easily? Yes, I did. And probably if I if I wasn't in those early days, uh, still, you know, if I didn't have my team and my startup that I felt culturally at, you know, at home with, it probably would have been really hard. It is, it's a completely different way of working. But when you think about the opportunity, the opportunity to use the resources of the third largest company in the world to advance this ultimately important agenda on using tech for good, including everyone reaching further with these opportunities, that has been incredible. And it's three years in the making. And I think some of the best work that I've ever done is what what the team and I have had the privilege to work on at Google for Startups. That's wonderful to hear. Before we continue with today's episode, I was wondering if I could ask you a small favor. We absolutely love sharing our guests' inspiring stories with you, and I can't thank you enough for being one of our loyal listeners. But feedback is so important. So if you have any suggestions on how we can make 40-Minute Mental even better, or you just want to tell us how much you love the show or a particular episode, then we would love to hear from you. So please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a review. We really, really appreciate it. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to hear from you. I guess you are a serial entrepreneur. Uh, you've so you've been a founder. You've also worked with lots of founders of startups, as particularly in your new role. So I'd love to I'd love to know what are the traits you look for in founders, and also what are the common mistakes you see founders making? Because again, I think there are going to be people listening in, whether they've got a business now or they they want to have one in the future, that can learn a lot from your unique insights on that. Thank you. I mean, so I think. It was really interesting in the sort of early days of COVID uh, where everybody was panicking and nobody knew what to do anymore. And I was sat in a conference with a bunch of recruiters, actually, and consultants saying for the first time, 
none of the things that they seem to know and take for granted were true anymore. They're like, we're trying to play CEOs and suddenly all these things that were predictors of success, like tenure and experience and education, they were no longer really predicting success in this tumultuous, chaotic time. But the single thing that consistently correlated with success was adaptability and ability to learn quickly. So I think this is incredibly important for me when thinking about founders and It's not only the ability to learn up until the point when you start a company, but also the ability to recognize that you don't know something. This whole idea of like, you know, the known unknowns and unknown unknowns, the ability to ask the right questions. And actually, you know, we're in the process of launching a podcast that it's all about asking the right questions. And I'd love to talk about that later on. So the ability to learn, asking the right questions, ability to surround yourself with the right people. Again, it sort of goes back to the point of knowing what you're really good at and being able to identify some of your gaps and fill them with people you surround yourself with. You asked about common sort of mistakes and misconceptions. I think that there is there is a fine line, again, when we think about definitions of success and who are successful entrepreneurs, we're mostly thinking very type A, macho man. Oh, I know everything and this is how it's going to be. I like to not confuse charisma for single-mindedness that can sometimes be terrible for the business because it's it's sort of if if you are blind spots if you don't take on feedback you might fail so I think just sort of fi- finding the right balance between being charismatic and believing in your vision but also taking on feedback and, and being able to ask the right questions is is pretty important to me and I think again we sort of talked about it earlier, just being consistent and knowing that there will be ups and downs, but you need to stay resilient and you need to bounce back. And there is a point around resilience, which is, again, being able to be a be a full human to not only work 24-7, but also to be able to bounce back emotionally and mentally, to be able to create a psychologically safe environment where everybody is doing their best work. But actually, a definition of best work for me is, you know, sometimes you will fail. If you're not failing, sometimes it means you're not pushing yourself hard enough. And But if you're if you have a culture where failure is not an option, then you're not going to push yourself that hard because you wouldn't want to fail because then what happens? So, so much of it is, I think, you know, technical skills can be picked up. Business skills can be picked up, but there's a certain attitude and some of the soft skills that I'm I'm really excited we're discussing more and emphasizing more when thinking about the leaders that we want to see. That's super, super interesting. Thank you so much, Marta. I think one other thing that I'd love just to get your thoughts on, because from your unique vantage point is 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 around the, the world of work and how it's changing, you know, in 2022. We've had two kind of crazy years with the pandemic and I guess We've all had to adapt to new ways of working. What are you seeing in terms of on the horizon for the year year and years ahead around the world of work, particularly in the startup and scale-up space? And are there any particular insights you've you've gleaned from the companies you're talking to on a daily basis? I mean, I think if you're if you're asking what what the pandemic has changed, I mean it's it's hard not to mention the whole world of remote and hybrid. So many people much better informed than me have had a view on this already. But I think if I was to if I was to summarize it, I would say we've proven to everyone that it's possible to get work done remotely, but I still believe that relationships are uniquely built in person. 
So even if this means that teams need to come together once a week or once a month for some sort of strategy days and then to go to the pub. I mean, realistically, actually, if I can ask a question to your audience, can somebody teach me how to build a business and build a culture in an organization without going to the pub sometimes? Like I find it so critically important. And maybe it's just the sort of culture of this country, but like it's just it's just how you bond. Like you need the banter, you need the relationships, you need to have that relationship to rely on so to then be able to remotely effectively work with each other. I think actually speaking of leadership and, and what I think, who I think is a good leader, uh, Tushar, the founder of um, Hubble HQ, very interesting founder. They were a business that provided office space and obviously pandemic really messed things up for them. They've reinvented themselves. And there is a fascinating story on Twitter from Tushar talking about his experience of basically realizing his business might fail and how to turn things around. And they're doing now better than they ever have before. And it's really about flexible approach to working. So, you know, different people might have an office close to their home, but every so often you are able to come together for a day or for for two. I think we're all every organization has to has to find their right balance of of being away from each other but also coming together in the right moments to build these relationships so i definitely think things like offsite are not going anywhere but i suppose if i was to say anything else that i think the pandemic has changed i mean again our sort of our appreciation for 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 our local communities definitely is is up and i think the way that is thinking about it's it's making people think about the, the buying power of their money and where they're spending their money. I think we're becoming much more thoughtful. So I think this whole idea of going into, you know, putting cash behind, you know, direct to consumer brands that stand for our values that are doing particular things, backing small business. I genuinely think sort of sustainability is becoming more and more important. I think even just sitting in the same bedroom or kitchen for two years, you sort of start realizing what's happening to our planet a little bit more. And I think everybody is just becoming a little bit more aware of how important this is, which is why I'm so excited to see lots of climate tech companies doing really well, investors waking up to the to the financial opportunity beyond just the impact opportunity as well. So yeah, these are definitely some of the things that are that are that are front of mind. Yeah, no, that that's that's amazing. And and I think one of the other big topics that we've covered on this podcast, but is also really a, the forefront of a lot of our candidates' minds is around diversity and inclusion, particularly in the tech industry and in the VC industry, which has had a lot of criticism over the years for, for not being diverse enough. You you are a real trailblazer in, in the fintech space, uh, you know, as, as, as a woman founder that's achieved huge success. How do you champion DEI at Google? And what advice would you have for any aspiring entrepreneurs, particularly from underrepresented communities that are listening to this, that want to follow in your footsteps? No, I, I love that question. And it's and it's interesting that you say, you know, I that yes, I was a sort of a woman in fintech, which meant that was already hoo-ha, diversity and, and true. Like there was there was a point where I really got a lot of press because I was one of the not very many women that sat at the intersection of finance and tech, which unsurprisingly wasn't particularly gender diverse. But, but it's in very depressing. It's depressing how <laughs> it must be so depressing at the time that you were that that, that was such big news. Well, what I would say is what's more depressing is that it's been very many years and, and very little has changed. So I actually think so there are two points that I feel quite passionate about. One is I genuinely don't think that I am diversity anymore. We really need to be careful not to make diversity and inclusion 
box be ticked by well-educated white women. I am a migrant from Eastern Europe, but by all accounts, I am well-educated, able-bodied, articulate, and a bunch of other things that set me up for success in the way that they have. And I have over the years become quite quite angry and frustrated about how I see, oh, diversity and inclusion, let's, let's, let's put a well-educated white woman on a panel that went to Oxbridge and suddenly, you know, like we've, we've done our job. I definitely don't think that's, that's good enough anymore. It maybe was in 2014, but I don't think it is now. And to your point about it being depressing, I religiously read the State of European Tech report from Atomico every year that it comes out. And last year, 1.1% of all VC money in Europe went to all female teams. Less than nine went to mixed male-female and over 90% went to all male teams. Less than 1% of VC money went to uh, founders of color, a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction to black founders. So the thing that I find frustrating is that it feels like it's getting better because I think the media is slightly changing the narrative. We're becoming more politically correct. We're thinking more about who we put on panels and on front covers of magazines. But the fact that we're changing the narrative doesn't necessarily mean that the people who actually day-to-day benefit from the access to capital in this space that defines who succeeds and who doesn't, that doesn't seem to be changing. So I almost want to be careful not to get to a place where I where where the work that I do and talking about it might just create the perception that things are improving, but actually cover up the fact that they're not really. So I think it has to be said out loud. Things are not getting better at any rate. One thing that has improved a little bit, the number of female partners in VC firms and partners of color, it's still single digits to low double digits. It's not adequate and it's not enough, but we need to be changing dynamic on both sides of the table for these things to change. And it's great that there's a lot of programs that provide mentorship. And again, we're sort of this 40-minute mentor, right? So mentorship is important, but this access to capital is absolutely critical. So what we have been doing at Google for Startups, uh, we've been running programs for women founders for years. We actually just um, wrapped up a program for founders in the women's health space, which I loved because it was both these founders were relevant to each other from a sort of industry perspective. And these are some of the, some of the companies working on such important issues, endometriosis, that touches as many patients as diabetes, but because it exclusively happens to people with uteruses, for every dollar that's spent on research into endometriosis, 200 are spent on diabetes. So there's a brilliant company called Serona Health working on that. Companies working on issues around lactation, uh, support for parents, sexual health and well-being. So yeah, great program because again, women and specifically women's health. But beyond programs, we started putting cash into businesses. So last year, we spun up the first Black Founders Fund. And it started in the US, then in Brazil. Uh, and in Europe, we had a $2 million fund where we invested in 30 companies from across Europe, 20 of which are from the UK. That was six months ago. So we paired the capital with six months of programming. And these were small checks. I mean, $2 million in 30 companies. But what we wanted to do is use the, you know, sort of become a signal to the wider ecosystem, hello, investors, you're trying to tell me that there aren't excellent black-led startups in Europe, and this is why you're not investing in them. We had 800 applications, and we invested in 30. So here you go, in your face, have a look. And it's working, because in six months, 
these founders raised $63 million of follow-on funding, $63 million on $2 million and counting. This number keeps on going up. And we did the same thing in Africa. We invest $3 million in 50 companies. And in Africa, again, you wouldn't think that this is, this is needed. But in fact, white and expat founders in Africa are finding it increasingly easy to fundraise cash on the continent, whereas black African founders are being discriminated against. So I really think that the role of, you know, the work that we do is important. And now it's, the, now it's really about... And what I'm really excited about is hopefully next time you have somebody on, 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 on your podcast, it won't have to be me talking about the founders, but now we'll have the success stories. These founders who have done exceptionally well. Audio Mob just raised 10 million Series A. Yeah, Christian's uh, fun- coming on the podcast soon, very soon. There you go. So that's the thing. Like You start changing the narrative of what a successful founder looks like, and then they they become stupid endlessly, you know, successful. They start angel investing in the community. It inspires people, you know, this whole thing of you can't be what you can't see. You sort of look at people in your community and you see, okay, they're mega successful. I want to be like that. So um, yeah, that's, I, I, I'm, I'm delighted with this work. Oh, well, congrats on, on, on all your success for that. And long may it continue. I think it, it's that beautiful ripple effect, as you say. I think we all have our part to play as well, that all of us working in tech. And um, I love how vocal you are about the amount of work that still needs to be done. I think we shouldn't be quiet about it. And I think we, we need to keep, keep making sure that message is heard loud and clear. So thank you for, for sharing that. Marta, we're really we're running out of time, so we really have to talk about your podcast, this, which is I'm very excited about, Scale Ups and Downs, um, which you launched an extended trailer of at the back end of 2021. So please tell our listeners all about it, where the inspiration came from and why they should tune in. Awesome. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, James, you know, I look at people like you having so much fun running podcasts and I'm like, I want me a piece of that. (laughs) Actually, the the inspiration came from years of running what we call founder stand up. So as part of our our programming and our efforts at startups, we bring together groups of founders and we encourage them to share a highlight, a low light and the biggest challenge they're working through to sort of uh, encourage sharing, model vulnerability, but also there's this whole thing of, you know, it's lonely at the top. Even if you, if you have co-founders or teams, quite often it just doesn't feel right to be able to share with, with people that you're working with. So to be able to do that with fellow founders has been therapeutic, cathartic, creative. Some of the most wonderful moments I've seen in my Google work uh, with startups was in founder stand-ups. And we realized over the years that a lot of the conversations are very universal. They sort of are around the similar themes of you know fundraising, people and hiring and leadership, product and innovation, growth, strategy. And we thought, actually, why not try and have these conversations in an open forum with founders sharing a challenge uh, that they're experiencing? And for each episode, we've got two founders tuning in with their challenge. And I'm joined by two experts who are most often experienced founders, investors, operators, people have who have done this before. And we sort of real time talk about the issue. My husband calls it <laughs> agony on for founders. Um, so yes, yeah, scale ups, scale ups and downs. Again, it's sort of it's it's a, you know, the clue is in the name. We're trying we're trying to combat this idea that is, you know, that the only way is up and you have all these overnight successes. Actually, in all of these success stories, there is a lot of grind and, and asking yourself tough questions. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've recorded a few episodes already. Um, but the bit that I'm really excited about 
is that um, it is very much a total participation effort. So we want to reach more founders, not just the ones that are already in our community, but also those that perhaps have not had a chance to work with us before. Again, going back to this point of access. So if you're a founder and you have a challenge at any stage of your startup or your business, if you go to scaleupsanddowns.com, you can send a voice note or an email to us describing a challenge. And we would love to invite you onto the podcast. And then that's an opportunity for you to have people hear about your company, meet some cool people who will together with me work through the challenge. So so yes, we've got some more episodes coming out soon and I'm 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 definitely massively, massively looking forward to it. Oh, I can't can't wait to tune in, Martin. Well all the very best from us with that. And I'm sure everyone listening will be uh, subscribing. I hope so. And uh, look forward to hearing uh, how that develops. We're sadly at the end. So we've got a final wrap up questions. So if you don't mind answering in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Google startups? I hope that we'll be able to prove that allowing or creating opportunities for underrepresented founders in the tech space is not a charity or a goodwill effort, but it's just exceptionally good business. And I hope that we will have been able to play a role in that movement. And I also really hope that this movement will end soon. There will no longer have to be a movement because we'll get to a place where things will just be fair and equitable. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. So a little bit more work to do. What a good answer. Thank you. And at the end of your career, what would you like to be remembered for? I hope that people would remember that we had some great times and some fun and did some cool work. It's really very simple. Like just do some good work and then go to the pub at the end of the day and celebrate it. Happy days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And last two questions. This is the 40 Minute Mentor. Do you have a mentor? And if you could be mentored by one person dead or alive, who would that be and why? I, I've i had many mentors. I really believe in what I call mini mentorship. I think sometimes it's tricky to go up to a person and say, hi, would you like to be my mentor? And suddenly it feels like this big thing you need to sign up to. One of the people who are definitely my mentor and the dear friend, and I love him dearly, is Marcus Exel, one of the co-founders of Moniz, a prolific angel investor and just a thoroughly delightful human being who once upon a time made me believe that it is possible to be successful and be a good person and that these two are not mutually exclusive. So definitely a big shout out to Marcus. But if I could be mentored by anybody else in the world, see, that's the thing. I believe in the power of paying it forward. I'd like to give that golden ticket to a founder who is on the cusp of making their big break now and they would need that golden ticket. Amazing. And finally, Marta, what's your last piece of advice could be career advice or it could be life advice for our listeners to leave them with. Don't give up. It's so simple. But if in your heart of hearts you feel you're doing the right thing for yourself, for your community, you're solving a problem, if you're enjoying the work, then probably you are doing the right thing. And yeah, just surround yourself with the people who will support you in that journey and make it worth it. I, I can't think of very many things other than entrepreneurship that are as intellectually emotionally stimulating and as worth it as this i couldn't agree more marta it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for joining us on the 40 minute mentor and sharing your story and wise mentorship with our listeners we really appreciate it thank you so much thank you james you've been wonderful thank you cheers 
I really hope you found that as interesting and inspiring as I did. Marta is so honest and humble. It's so refreshing. And she really cut to the core on diversity and how we need to stay focused because the narrative might have changed, but there's still so much more that needs to be done in tech. Marta also shared some great advice for founders and aspiring entrepreneurs, including some of those common misconceptions about founder life and the importance of adaptability and being able to ask the right questions to the right people. And I also really appreciated her candor when it came to her own failures, which is something I think we can all learn from. Marta is a real shining light in the tech ecosystem and somebody that I learned a lot from in our conversation. So I hope you did too. Before we wrap up today's episode, I also wanted to give a special shout out to our sponsors for the series, Chipper Cash. We had the great pleasure of having Chipper's founder, Hamza and Joji on the podcast last series to find out all about their amazing journey to becoming a double unicorn. So please check out that episode when you get a chance. You'll find the link in the show notes. If you haven't heard of Chipper before, they're on a mission to connect Africa one transaction at a time, thanks to their mobile app that enables fast, secure, and free money transfers globally. So whether it's sending money across borders to support relatives or to run a business, Chipper Cash saves time and money, opening up new opportunities for Africans everywhere. The FinTech has been on an incredible journey and the team is hiring for some super exciting roles. So if you want to be part of a mission to unlock global opportunities and connect Africa one transaction at a time, head over to chippercash.com forward slash careers to find out more. And that's all from me today. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week for a very special International Women's Day episode featuring an absolute legend in the sporting world. More on that next week.